You know, we spent a lot of time in, in Romans, and I wanted to just open up our morning, focusing our mind around this idea of family, and so powerful to have those lyrics in our mind that we just sang, the great I am, and to get characteristics of what God is like, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is what we're talking about when we say God, our Father. And what a powerful word Karen said. These are just simple words, you know, letters on, on a screen that we sing or, or words from scripture, but they mean so much. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14, says this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So there's a lot to this passage. Let me just uh, lay out a couple of thoughts. One is this, that every single person you ever see was created by God. We share that in common. And so just intrinsically, they, they have some characteristics of God because we're made in the image of God. But every single person who's made by God isn't by default a child of God. You must be spirit born into God's family to be a child of God. We just read that. You must be spirit led to be a child of God. So that's a distinction. Here's another one. There's a brand new reality for every Christian according to these few verses. That is that we've been adopted. That means that there is confirmation even within our own spirit as God's spirit confirms that we are his children and that we're heirs in the, in, in the household of God. So we are walking around as Christians a strange bunch, to be sure, for a lot of reasons. But one of the realities that we carry, that we walk around with, is this deep understanding. We've been adopted into God's family. That we are co-heirs with Christ right now. That there's glory coming. But there's a third part that I want to highlight in this passage, and that is this. Some people feel like when rough times come, they go, am I a child of God or not? It is a temptation as old as men and women starting the human race. And this passage would indicate this, that hard times might, it it doesn't threaten, it certainly doesn't threaten the fact that you're a child of God. You ought not think, I'm having hard times, I'm having difficulties, I'm suffering, therefore I wonder if I'm a child of God. That is an enemy voice. That's a lie from Satan. This passage clearly tells us that glory is our family likeness and suffering like Jesus is our family likeness. Galatians 3.26 says it really simply. I have it in your notes, I think. If not, jot that down. Galatians 3.26. You are all children of God. Put the period right there and you start a cult. Hey, we're all children of God. You are all children of God, catch this, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what gives the distinction of of Christianity. You are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's what we hold to, it's what we cling to. We simply take hold of the gift of eternal life. We simply take hold of this adoption through faith. 
Now, we have some new babies in this church at any given time, all the time. It's just been that way for for 10 years. There's always some new baby in this church. And whether physically or spiritually, God knew something. And that is that brand new babies are not just born into this world and then left on their own. Brand new babies are to be born into a family. The PAs are sitting right here in the third row. Here's three of their lovely children. When they were born, Jamie did not just say, great, you're here. If you could get the lawns mowed by the afternoon, that'd be great. We're low on milk, but you're going to have to go pick it up from 7-Eleven. She didn't do that. She nurtured and cared for and grew these children to the point that they are right now. God takes physical babies and puts them in families. God takes spiritual babies and puts them, look around you, in families. We are the family of God. We are the household of God. What I've been praying about for weeks now is this. This very familiar concept has the potential to lose its impact and go right over our head because we've heard it so much. Because we just take for granted, of course we're brothers and sisters. Of course we're the family of God. We're on this series right now that we're calling Heading. And it's the idea of voyaging together to a, to a destination. And we've charted the course, but all the specifics aren't worked out. We are, we are heading there together. If you want to just sort of see these three simple words, simple, family, and gifts. These are the three things we're working through. Last week was simple. If you missed last week, please go back and listen to it. This week we're focusing on family and the two big ideas um, that we're looking at is this. Well, first of all, we're, with each of these, we're sort of setting out expectations for the voyage. We're also looking at some of the obstacles that will happen um, along the way. This is not an invitation to just hear from the church leadership and receive. This is, a, this is an invitation to participate. It's an invitation for you as a regular church attender, as a brand new visitor, or as a committed covenant member of this church to latch hold of this this and say, God, help me get my head around, help me pray and participate and, and come alongside the directions that you're, that you're taking our church. Today we're focusing on family, and the big idea is this, that we are going to, we are committed to living as family. We are committed to living what the Bible says to be, and that we're going to lift up the family, that we are going to promote and sustain and be a support to the family. Now, I want to start with some obstacles. There's not a ton of notes to take. You can just jot some things down if you'd like. But there are some real obstacles that are that are potentially in our path. First Peter 5, 8 through 9 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then there's an action part for us. Resist him, firm in your faith. There are some obstacles that we have to being family as a church, isn't there? It's good for us, it's on us to keep aware of them. It's not that we are unaware. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Your enemy is not your brother and sister. Your enemy are not those who don't understand the picture of family and therefore fight against it. 
You are fighting an enemy that has plans and schemes and armies to tear down and fight against what we're talking about this morning. We see this. We know this. Because we look around. Our job, resist and stand firm. Now I want to walk through some uh, three different categories of obstacles. Here's the first one. A destructive view of the family. When you come to church, some of you bring with you such a broken, destructive view of family that when we pray to our Heavenly Father, that word Father immediately grinds on you. It immediately grates on everything that you are and you can't control it. And sometimes there's a visceral reaction that you just go, oh man, I can't stand that word. When we talk about family, when we talk about brothers and sisters, the very terminology that should be painting a picture actually can block your view of understanding what God's designed because of your own inherited destructive view of the family. Here's a really interesting question that I ask people sometimes when I meet them. Sometimes I just ask this. This is a, this is a common scenario of where it would be asked. But sometimes people walk into our church on a random Tuesday afternoon and they're looking for help of some sort. Is there a pastor here? Can I talk to someone? Sure. Sometimes it's for spiritual things and they want prayer or they want relational advice or whatever. But most often it's physical needs. I'm out of gas. I'm out of food. I'm out of a job. I don't have a place to live. I can't pay my electric bill. Can the church help? So one of the very first questions that I will ask, I'll just kind of hear the need, and I'll ask this. Do you have any family? Now, do you have any family is a dumb question, kind of, right? What's the answer? Of course! Everyone has a family. But you can tell a lot from a person by just meeting them and saying, Hey, do you have any family? Sometimes they launch into this great tale of, oh yeah, I've got tons of family. And, da, da, and they just launch out and it's excited and it's bubbly and they're, they're super energetic about it. Sometimes they sort of mumble something and then completely change the subject. You can learn a lot about someone by just asking the question, hey, any family? If they do not want to talk about their family, there's chances are that they are bringing a destructive view of family to the church. And so that's a, that's a pain point, isn't it? And it's an understanding point that I want to get at and I want to sort of, I want to sort of share. What the church isn't is we're not a vending machine for people's PG&E bills. That's not what God has set us up. We're not a social agency that just sort of dispenses help apart from relationship. In fact, apart from relationship, we're really not useful. So I start there and I ask that kind of question. Some studies have been done, um, I was reading up recently this week on, on one about what makes people happy. Uh, these two psychologists were discussing the fact that so many psychological studies are depressing and sad and all this, and they thought, let's do what one kind of flip it on its head and, and discover what, people, what, what makes people happy. What's interesting about their study is this. We have a youth-obsessed culture. These were American psychologists. It wasn't being young. In fact, they actually found that older people were happier than younger. It wasn't money. Many people buy into the lie that more money, more stuff equals more happiness. Some of you have been down the road. I love the testimonies in this room. Some have been down that road. You're like, been there, done that. That's not happiness. Some people might think it's prestige or power. If I could just sort of climb the ranks and, and do that. That's, a, that's a certainly a God in this valley. You know what they discovered? It's belonging and meaningful connection with other human beings. That's what makes people happy. Shocking to a people, to a bunch of people in church? No. We're not shocked by that. 
We look at that and we say that only confirms that that scientifically done, statistically done study only confirms what we know to be true as Christians. And that is this. There is a relational creator. He's revealed himself in familial terms. He's the father. We are the children. You are brothers and sisters with one another. He exists in relationship himself, father and son and Holy Spirit in perfect relationship. And we know that as a creator and created beings who bear the image of that creator, that it is hardwired into us to long for connection, to long for belonging. We just know this. That's not news to us. Here's what else we know. That when that does not happen, you don't just move on and say, I'm good, which is what a lot of people do. A lot of people think, no, I don't really want to talk about my family. In fact, I moved as far away from my family as I possibly could. Let's change the subject. I'm good. Hear me. It's hardwired into who you are. You are not good. When that is severed and broken, that leaves us broken uh, as well. Christian, I want you to hear something today. And again, I hope this lands somehow with freshness. And it has to be the Spirit of God that opens your eyes to this. You belong to and in the family of God. You just do. That is a settled truth that will utterly change your world. You need to hear the truth from the pulpit. You belong to and in the family of God. That is worth singing about. That's worth dancing about. That's worth crying about. That is amazingly good news. It's one of the side benefits of being uh, a Christian. This church, the reason we're focusing on heading as family is this. We long for you to hold, to take hold of that, to live out of that reality, and to find your place in the family, to find how you belong. We live in sort of a divorce culture. Uh, loyalty and commitment, sure, of course we like that, but I want the loophole. I want the way out. It's sort of like prenup agreements for everything. We do that contractually. We do that with all these different things. So we have this pervasive divorce culture going on, and it taints the way that we view the church. I mean, gaping holes are caused in our lives by those who are closest to us and shouldn't be causing gaping holes. What do we do with that? Some of you know this. I come from a broken home. That's a really apt title. It's broken. It was torn apart. Has God mended and used all kinds of things from that for good? Absolutely. I've walked with literally hundreds of middle school, high school, and college-age kids. When they got the news, guess what? My parents are splitting up. In this room this morning, and for the next couple of hours, will be many, many family stories. Does God heal divorce? Yes, it's not the unpardonable sin. Hear that. Does God heal people who are in the midst of it and who've gone through it? Absolutely. God can redeem our junk and turn it into something that's useful and that, and that he can, and that he can create for good. But let's not gloss over it and accept it as status quo. Of course, 50% of marriage is divorce. So what? We renounce that. We say, no, 
not on our watch. Everything that we can do to hold up the vows of marriage and the institute of marriage, God made, not man made, we will do with all of our might. You know, sometimes the divorce culture leaves us sort of hugely uncomfortable with conflict. And so we just sort of don't even know how to to deal with that. I've met several people who just say, you know, whenever there's conflict, whenever there's a slight raise of voice, I go back to being a six-year-old hoping and wishing my parents would just get along, and I just hate it. And I know it's not even all that productive, but I just leave. I can't be around any conflict. And so people throw this out in the church. Hey, judge not lest you be judged. Let's just not, let's not go there. Let's talk about happier times. The truth is this, that families are God's first and best classroom for learning some really challenging and beautiful relational things like selfishness and love. Fighting and sharing, disappointment and justice, and injustice. Families are God's greenhouse to kind of grow these things up. You know what else parents don't have to teach our children? Selfishness, revenge, running away from problems. You know what we do have to instill in our kids all the time? We have to teach them how to disagree without insulting each other without somehow violating other people, without abusing other people. We have to instill that all the time. We have to instill in them, wait a minute, here's how you speak the truth. Don't don't say it's okay. I can read it in your body language. It's not okay. So speak the truth to your brother, to your sister, but do it in love. Man, those are challenging lessons. And guess what? I'm still learning these things. But as parents, those are the things, those are just a few of the things that we're trying to instill into our kids. Here's what's amazing. I don't care if you have a good, bad, or ugly family situation. God can redeem the metaphor of family. He already has in many of your lives. He's working on it in many of your lives. If you think you have a bad, screwed up family, go read Genesis and the Bible person Joseph this afternoon. You want to talk about a messed up family. Go read Joseph and then say, okay, maybe I don't have it quite so bad until your siblings have sold you into slavery. You're probably a step above Joseph. And yet at the end of that, what is Joseph able to say? The things you meant for evil, brothers, God's turned into good. The great I am has the power, has the grace, has the creativity to take the worst case scenario and have him weep and embrace his brothers and have restoration and and future family reunions because he's that big of a God. So I don't care how messed up your family is, read your Bible, you'll discover you're not alone and you're probably not even at the top slot of worst families ever. Ephesians 1.5 says this, his unchanging plan. Think about this. We get invited into the family of God, not because he was lonely, but because it gave him great pleasure to do so. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Watch this. And this gave him great pleasure. Son, daughter of God, you are God's delight. You're the apple of his eye right now. 
I don't know what kind of week you've had. You may feel like your spiritual disciplines are good and here you are at church for Pete's sake and you feel like you bring something to the table. You may have had a rotten week and right now you're harboring resentment towards someone you're sitting near. And right now I just caught you thinking about future sin you're planning. By the blood of Jesus Christ. Gotcha. By the blood of Jesus Christ. Catch this. You did not earn your way into God's family. You don't earn your way out of God's family. Friends, this is something to cycle back to. I can't miss a week of church, not because I'm the pastor and it's my job. I can't miss a week of church because I need to get with God's people. I need to be, I need to be reset. I need to be reminded I'm a part of a family and that won't ever change. Here's obstacle number two is doubt. There is an enemy voice driving you away from the family. Turn in the very last, uh, the last two verses of the Old Testament for a minute. It's the book of Malachi chapter four. Flip open to that for a second. I want to show you something. In Malachi chapter four, God is giving a prophecy and he's calling people to a very specific kind of action. And because we see in the scriptures that family is priority to God, it's not just one thing. He says this in Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And after this prophecy, there's some 400 years of silence, scripturally speaking. God values the family. God understands this, that there is a wedge, there is a force driving the hearts of fathers away from their children. There is a force driving the hearts of children away from their parents. And God ties this in with utter importance. This church fights fiercely for the family. We understand that your family story that you bring to this is really important. We understand that the way you conduct yourself in your household outside of this place, that is marriage, Pre-marriage, in the household, setting up a household, your kids are all grown and you're using your household in what way? We understand all that's immensely important. Here's, here's why. Because great good comes when a household is functioning the way God wants it to function. Massive good comes when children are brought up knowing the ways of God. They have it modeled to them. They have it talked about. They have it pursued. Are you perfect? Of course not. But the Bible shows us what to do because we're not perfect. So we learn about repentance. We learn about forgiveness. We don't just learn, learn the words, I'm sorry. That's the most common form of starting to rebuild a relationship in our household. I'm sorry. We talk about eye contact. We talk about heart. We talk about it's more than those two words. We also understand this, that great destruction follows when your home is yielded to the flesh. 
when you are just left, everyone doing what comes naturally. What we know is that is a downhill slide. We are given promises in the scriptures, and we must cling to these. We're given these promises because these very ideas will come under attack. Listen to this in Ephesians 2.19 about God's household. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Watch this. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's own household. Do you see why I said at the start? You have to understand this. You belong in and to this family. That is a lock solid, rock solid truth that you need to cling to. You are not outsiders. You belong. Yeah, but someone looked cross at me at church. Someone sat in my seat. I always sit there. It made me feel very, very uncomfortable. Someone skipped by me when I tried to say good morning to them. I make light of those things, but you know what? There are times as a shepherd, I go and pursue sheep I haven't seen in a while. Do you know why they're not here? Someone looked at them sideways, they think. Friends, your enemy is not your brother and sister. I don't go back from that meeting and go, listen, church, no one, no one look crossly at anyone else, ever, because we're losing people. <laughs> Here's what I understand. This is my friend Simona right here. Simona's been very gracious with me over the years. I've known Simona for a long time. And I might be walking towards Simona after a service. And I actually am looking at Michael and I walk right by. And she goes, hi, Dave, and grabs my arm. I go, hi, Simona, good to see you. And I go and I talk to Michael. Here's what I know. I know that there are spiritual forces that can come and play with Simona right there. He doesn't care about you. The shepherds of this church, they care nothing for the flock. See, he's just talking to Michael. What are they even talking about? There are spiritual forces, friends. When I leave a meeting and someone hasn't been at church for months or weeks because someone looked cross at them at church, I get on my knees and pray. I don't know what else to do. Our God is greater. God, would you overcome the nonsense of that? Now, some of you need to grow up. I need to grow up. We need to be kind and tender-hearted. We need to prepare our hearts to minister to one another. But the real battle isn't that we all get our looks right and we don't ever, 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 ever ignore someone intentionally or unintentionally. That's a fool's errand. We can't possibly do that. We recognize that this is a spiritual battlefield. I've never wondered if I'm welcome at church. I've been a part of three churches for my entire life. I've never struggled with whether I'm welcome or not. Now that's testimony to those three church families that prodigals are welcome and can come back. But here's what I know. Many, many people, in fact, some of you in this room probably, have struggled with this very question. I don't think I'm welcome at church. And what a lie from the enemy. I meet people and I say, you know, they, they say they're a Christian. Hey, I saw you reading your Bible. I saw you guys praying. I saw you talking about spiritual things. Hey, brother, are you a Christian? Yeah, I am. Where do you go to church? Well, I don't really go to church right now. That's sort of the, uh, hey, tell them about your family. <laughs> they want to change the subject real quick. I said, well, why not? Well, the church burned me. Tell me about it. 
Money, sex, power. Probably the three most things that get the biggest headline, right? A lot of churches go down in flames over those things. But a lot of times it's a whole lot more subtle. I don't know, I just didn't really fit in. I couldn't find my place. I didn't feel welcomed. I don't know of a church that isn't trying their hardest to be welcoming. What do you do as a church if you're not welcoming? That's like basics, right? What I know is this. I get people who say, Dave, when I walked into this church, the presence of God was evident before the service started just by the way people interacted with each other. And for that, I just give praise to God because we don't have some special program we're teaching everyone to do that. In the same church, in fact, in the same service, I could meet with someone and talk to them and they say, you know what, I came in and I just felt so utterly alone and it felt awkward to feel alone in the midst of so many people. Same service. So I've never struggled with not feeling welcome to church, but I know that people feel that. So you know what, when I meet people, I don't take that for granted, I let them know. I, I remind them if, I, if they haven't been here in a while, you are missed and you're welcome here. I invite people personally to my church. Not my church because I'm the pastor, my church because I'm a Christian and this is my family. So I just invite them. Do you know that you're invited to my church? I am? Yeah. And those are spiritual forces keeping people away from that. We get this question all the time. You probably don't as much as we do. In case you don't know, we have several adopted children who are biologically different than us. In fact, they're from different countries. They're different races. And we get this all the time. Which are your real kids? Now, if you're taking notes and you want to be halfway tactful to an adoptive family, don't ever say that. If you've said that to me, there's a ton of grace. I don't judge that. I really don't. Because... So people say this, people say, which ones are your real kids? And I say this, I say, they're all real, and they're all mine. And then they say this, well, you know what I mean. And I say, I do know what you mean. I'm usually, I'm usually in a pretty good mood about that, and I say, I do know what you mean. But language is important. Language is really important. So then I just asked them this, I said, let's explore this for one second. Which category of truth of measure whether they're my kids or not is, is, is different in any of my kids. Let's start with love, family access, all the same. Let's start with their name, all the same. Uh, let's move on to family privileges, all the same. Let's move on to family responsibilities, all the same. Family inheritance, all the same. Family likeness, all the same. We are more than our skin color. So what I do is I say, look, you want to talk about love legally, physically, it's all exactly the same. They're all mine and they're all real. By virtue of the fact that they're my kids in my family, that's the nature of the game. Church, hear this. The nature of being a child of God is that all those things are the same across the board for everyone. And there will be seasons of your life where you will feel super connected, super fulfilled. You'll love going to family parties and reunions. And there will be other times where you will feel isolated, estranged, not all that comfortable, and grating to be a part of the family. 
The truth of the matter is your inheritance doesn't change. Your legal status does not change. So that's a powerful truth for us. The highest compliment and achievement you can aspire to in this life is being part of the family of God. For those of you who are type A driven people trying to achieve all that this world has to offer, I invite you to chill out. Take a deep breath. You've already achieved the best thing you can achieve if you're a son or daughter of the Most High, Great I Am, that we just sang about. Here's obstacle number three. Despite all those amazing birthday presents that you get, a brand new name, a family likeness, an inheritance, protection and provision at the table of God, there also comes conflict. There's division. Look at this picture for a second. I'm not positive what's going on on this picture. But what would a voyage be like if most of the able-bodied people on the sailboat happily had their life vests on but never pitched in? Meanwhile, a crew of six people are frantically trying to do the job of, let's say, 22 people. What would happen is this. Those who are frantically trying to do three and four and five jobs would eventually get resentful of the people sitting there with life vests on, right? Those who are sitting there with life vests on, watching everyone scramble around, go, this is great, this is stunning, look at him climb up the mast, this is cool, would eventually get bored. Eventually, they would want tropical drinks served to them with little umbrellas on it, because it's hot. They begin to complain about the bobbing. Could we level the, the boat out a little bit? I'm spilling my drink. I'm feeling a little queasy here. You have anything to read? Any iPads on the boat? I mean, it becomes a sad scenario. Let me, let me tell you, this is the picture, the sad picture of many churches in America. I know this experientially. I also know this because I see the kinds of gripes and complaints that come from those scrambling around doing the work and those sitting on the little sailboat waiting for their drink to be served. I bring up this picture because of this. Families must fight for unity. And next week we're going to talk about all members using their gifts. And I think that a lot of the division problems get solved when we're busy doing our job. Hey, God's gifted you to go over and do this thing to the sailboat really fast when it needs to happen. I clearly don't know sailing. Whatever that is. Hey, God's gifted you to do this over here. Hey, this isn't a special gifting, but someone just threw up. That needs cleaning up. Go do it. When everyone is working and doing their thing, you know what? Divisions have a way of of dissipating on their own, don't they? So this, this one feeds right into... Uh, in two weeks when we'll talk about all members using their gifts. But families must fight for unity and intentionally maintain closeness. Division is a lurking obstacle. Listen to Ephesians 4.2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's how we're to live as a family. 
You know how we summarize that verse and some of the others before we head out on a beautiful day in Monterey or to the beach or whatever we're doing as a family? We say this all the time. My kids next service will be, will roll their eyes when I say this because we say this all the time. I say to this family before we pull out of the driveway, sometimes we offer up a prayer and just say, God, thanks for the gift of like getting to go do a mini vacation to the beach. Many people in all of history didn't get the luxury of doing that. We're, we're grateful today. But secondly, I say this. Everyone, eye contact in the rearview mirror, right? So I look at everyone. Let's all commit to doing the hard work of getting along. Right at the start of our day. Let's do the hard work of getting along. Isn't it hard work to get along with each other? It is. Sometimes not. But a lot of times it is. So we just say that up front. Let's do the hard work of getting along. It's hard to be gentle when someone's being rough with you. It's hard to not seek revenge. It's hard to be forbearing and loving when you don't feel it. How important is unity? Think back to family breakups and church breakups. And so many of those can trace their way back to just little divisions, little tiny cracks in the foundation of the church, little tiny cracks in the foundation of the marriage and the relationship, and pretty soon people just began to live separate lives. We're to watch this closely. Paul ties repairing relationships, which is another word for forgiveness, into the schemes of the devil. Listen carefully. He says, if you forgive anyone, he's writing to a church in Corinth that is pretty screwed up. (laughs) If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven them in the sight of Christ for your sake. Listen. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. He ties in the schemes of the devil to broken relationship, to not maintaining the spirit of peace in unity. So powerful. How important is this? It's massive. And we're not unaware of his schemes. We do well to prepare for all these obstacles in advance so that when these obstacles come, not if they come, these will come as we head on this voyage. They just will. When they come, they're going to be molehills and not mountains because we're going to spot them and we're going to deal with them. This is not the pastor's job, the elder's job, your community group leader's job. This is a vigilance in all of us. Ben and I have a great working relationship, and I can say that because it's required a ton of hard work. You get two opinionated, visionary, creative types working a few feet away from each other. It requires this kind of maintenance. Hey, bro, earlier when, when you said that, I, I can't let it go. There just was a weird edge to your voice. Is there anything there at all? And if Ben says no, I've worked with him for eight years now, nine years. I take his word for it. I let it go. But sometimes that leads to a half-hour maintenance conversation that didn't fit in my schedule, that I didn't want to do. But man, we just flush that out, let the fresh water come in, and we move on. We have a good working relationship because we model this behind the scenes, not just in front. Let me have you turn to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, what you're going to see is this. You're going to see these two ideas of living as the family of God and lifting up the family of God in two verses. It says this, I hope to come to you soon, 
But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is a powerful, life-changing reality, and that is this, that we know how to behave in God's household. We know how to be family. You know why? Because God has shown it to us. God's revealed it to us. How should you act as a brand new husband, as a brand new wife? You're pregnant and you're about to become a mom. How should you behave? You're a first-time grandparent. You're an aunt. You're an uncle. You're a sibling. You know, the relational landscape is littered with all kinds of carnage from people just doing the best they know how. That's just living in the flesh. I just kind of take what my parents gave me. I try my best to weed out the junk, but truth be told, I keep doing the same stuff I swore I would never do. And I just do my best. Jesus had this invitation. Come to me and live totally different. (laughs) Live completely different. And don't do it on your power, do it on my power. This only works if I'm in you, forming my image in you. So come and live completely different. Let me read some scripture and see how counterintuitive the Bible is. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. When I do a wedding, I often read, this is the Colossians passage, there's another one in Ephesians, I often read this, and I tell you, I get a lot of dirty looks when I read the Bible. I also have had many, many, many instances where I'm in line trying to serve myself up some fruit salad or something after the wedding's over, And a 21-year-old girl is next to me, and my wife and I get to minister because she's in utter tears. She said, I've never heard a wedding message like that. And it's not because I'm a brilliant speaker and have a unique wedding message. I basically preach the word. It's counterintuitive. Something inside this girl said, I want that so bad. All I've seen is brokenness. All I could hope for was something way down here. I would never dare let myself dream that high. It is counterintuitive to live our lives in our homes the way that God would would have us do it. Now, let the familiar relationship that you are practicing, working out by faith, standing firm, let that spill over into your church relationship. Look around you. This is your spiritual family. This spiritual family will go on forever. It takes investment for us to do that. This is shown in the qualifications for leaders of the church, by the way. It says that if you don't know how to manage your own household, why on earth should you be entrusted with God's household? NBC will live as the family of God. Second lap of this in several weeks, we're going to look at more of the specific implications. But let me get on to point two. Point two is that we will lift up the family. Because we know what healthy families ought to be, we won't shy away from holding up the truth of God's simple design for family. And we're going to hold up the mirror of the truth to ourselves first. And then we're going to proclaim it. 
will lovingly, boldly promote, support, and sustain God's revealed plan for the family. Friends, there is not a cultural storm coming against us. There is a cultural storm already raging all around us. It's going to take humility, courage, stick-to-itiveness to make this thing move. Persecutions coming from the intolerance police whose interpretation of live and let live excludes those who would read the Bible simply and live it out. That's what's here. The household of God, this passage says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I have to just share this. Um, This was written to a church in Ephesus, and there was a temple there. In fact, it shows up elsewhere in Scripture, to the goddess Diana. And this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was located in Ephesus. And one of the features of this, of this temple was that it had 127 pillars. And these were decorated with gems and golds, and each one was a gift from some king. Each pillar uh, sort of acted as a tribute, in fact, to the king who, who donated it. Uh, the, the buttress, or support, uh, refers to the foundation on which this whole structure rested. So think about the metaphor for a second, that the church is the foundation and the pillar that holds up the truth. Here, these Christians could think immediately in their mind of pillars and a foundation honoring the false god of the temple of Diana. That physical space was a testimony to the error of pagan false religion. And if you kind of study how they worshipped Diana, it was pretty wicked. By anyone's standards, frankly, in our culture. And he was contrasting that, that the church should be a testimony, a visual picture holding up God's truth, God's light. So for the sake of our neighborhood church, we are focused on holding up the simple family design from a place of authenticity. That is, we're walking in it and living it, not just preaching and proclaiming it out to people. Now, would the world really take notice if a Christian is seeking to live by the Spirit? Anyone win an award from from the the non-Christian government that we have on being um, a great family this last week? Anyone? So truth be told... We had someone. Thursday night, I was giving an interest meeting for Foster the Bay at Westgate Church. It was about 1,000 degrees. It was really hot that night. And during the Q&A section, someone brought up, what about the birth family? And, you know, how are we supposed to interact with them? And, you know, is there tension? And God brought to mind Jeff and Gina James from our church. Jeff and Gina foster two little boys. And we're, we're over here in this room about a month ago just sort of celebrating some of the things God's done in foster care. And Jeff brings up two things of interest. He said, first of all, I'm an introvert. And so just sharing amongst these 30 people is really scary for me, but God's bringing me out of my shell. And secondly, we just threw a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese for these two little boys, for one of the boys. And something like 20 plus of the extended family came and got to celebrate with that. And I said, Jeff, you know, as a pastor, I could dream long and hard about how to outreach to different hurting families. And here, you just taking steps of yes, walking in obedience, has given you this platform 
as you care for their boys to minister to 20 plus in our community that's a hurting family ripe for the love of God. The very next night, unbeknownst to me, I knew Foster the Bay was getting this award at the Department of Family Services. But unbeknownst to me, Jeff texts me later on Friday night and says, hey, guess what? We just won Foster Family of the Year. And it came complete with an impromptu acceptance speech. Does God take you out of your boat and cause you to walk on water or what? This is not Jeff's first choice on how to spend a Friday night. Now, here's the point. We would never go and do this to win awards from the county. That's not really ever the goal. But as I'm thinking this through, church, I go, man, all they're doing is trying to humbly and simply live as God has laid out the family. Their love is proactive for these boys. Their love is sacrificial to these boys. And the family takes notice, and now the county takes notice of that. You know, there's many implications, and we'll save most of these for later, but bottom line is this. We're not a business. We're not a country club. We're not a school. We're not an entertainment center. We're not a military group. We're none of those things. We're a family. Here's a couple of really tangible, practical things. One of the things we do around here once a year formally is we vacation together. You know what families do? They vacation together. Now, this is a picture from our camping trip last year. We decided to do the all-group shot during our worship service. We take the worship service into the Redwoods once a year. And I can tell you right now, there's a lot of effort in going camping, especially if you have small children. They don't tend to help set up the tent. There's a lot of effort setting up camping, and it's worth it. It's worth it to be together. Yeah, Eric made a great point. There was a joint worship team last year, and I think Jonathan might have been part of it too. But it was so great to just have, have us as all three services get to be together. Let me tell you about one more vacation that's happening. In a few days, on Wednesday, I'm leaving for Columbia. I'm leaving for Columbia to spend some vacation time down there with Angel. Uh, Angel has been saying for a while now, brother, come and see my beautiful country. I say, Angel, South America's kind of far to drive. Through just some amazing provision, myself and my oldest son are going to go down there. You know why I'm going down there? I'm going down there because I love Angel and Sandra. God's just knit my heart to their family. And you don't vacation with people you don't love. I'm going down there, and I want you to pray. I, the way God has already knit first, second, and third service together has been supernatural. It's been an answer to prayer. We're going to go down there, and we're going to go see some of the things that he's, he does down there. But more than anything, I'm, just, I'm joyful to get to connect with him on a deeper level.